What percentage of Americans do you think experience math anxiety? That panic, helplessness, paralysis, and mental disorganization when required to solve a math problem? 30%? How about 45%? Or maybe 10%? While daily life requires adults to apply math skills on a consistent basis, which the vast majority of Americans are actually capable of doing, Approximately 93% of Americans indicate that they experience some level of math anxiety. 93% of us are either getting sweaty palms and a racing heart just for trying to calculate the amount saved when something is on sale, or we simply try to avoid these math situations altogether in order to avoid that uncomfortable anxiety. Parents and educators, we have to work together so that these are not the experiences awaiting our children once they enter adulthood. Children start out life as inquisitive and innately mathematical beings. This fear is not the effect of a missing math gene, which isn't even real, by the way. This fear has been learned. It is the collective result of complex factors, including negative associations or experiences about one's belief in him or herself about doing math. We have the power to interrupt the current system and the cycle of fear. In episode four, I give three strategies to stop math anxiety before it starts. Welcome to the Kids Math Talk podcast, where in each episode, we give parents and educators practical tips and insights that will deepen mathematical understanding while also encouraging the conversation about math to remain active and positive. I'm your host, Desiree Harrison, elementary math coach and Kids Math Talk founder. When I think about math experiences for my nephew and youngest niece, who will both enter kindergarten in the fall, I am hopeful that they will be able to explore math concepts through play and experimentation and will be free from anxiety and stress. I'm excited to once again be able to work with children in my district and to help them experience the joy of math. But even with this optimism, the fact still remains that math anxiety has been recorded in children as young as five. Imagine being an innocent child in a kindergarten or first grade classroom with only a few years of schooling behind you, and already you're terrified of getting an answer wrong or of making a mistake in front of your peers. Mistakes, which by the way are natural and really how we learn. This will not only negatively affect your self-image, but this math anxiety will signal your amygdala to take over. That part of your brain responsible for the flight, fight, freeze, or appease response. When your amygdala is turned on in a sense, the result is that your working memory shrinks. So what exactly does that mean? Well, if your working memory is blocked, the new information is not going to be learned and retained. If a child as young as five is experiencing math anxiety, then this means that foundational skills such as counting forwards and backwards, one-to-one correspondence, or writing numbers, as well as the building of crucial number sense, are all at risk of not being retained. If this new information is not being learned, This could lead to a child disconnecting with the content later in the school year and in later grades. This will most likely lead to learning gaps, right? And the amygdala continuing to interfere with a child's working memory. If anxiety is not decreased and the learning gaps remain, 
This could lead to future avoidance of math and higher level math not being accessible to these students. Again, this is not because a student is not capable of mathematics, but because their experiences and feelings of panic, helplessness, and fear have caused them to disconnect from the subject and doubt the fact that they are capable. The adverse effects of math anxiety unfortunately do not stop when a child is done with school. This can play out negatively later in life, right, when certain types of employment and financial opportunities become out of reach because this panic and fear is blocking their true potential. And while research supports the fact that females and culturally and linguistically diverse students are often denied the rich learning opportunities that could deepen their understanding and help them to see themselves as mathematicians, this fear actually extends to all subsets of our population. We have to find new ways to help all children interact with math so that math anxiety does not follow 93% of the next generation into adulthood. The first strategy to help stop math anxiety is to move from judgment calls to words of affirmation. Early in my teaching career, I know I used phrases such as, you are so smart, or I really like your work, when talking to students about particular assignments. It wasn't necessarily every day, but when I did, I know that these praises weren't given to each individual student in the class. I did use these phrases with the best of intent, as I'm sure many of you might. And just like so many other adults, I didn't question these praises until I read Mathematical Mindsets, where Joe Bowler states that one reason so many students in the United States have fixed mindsets is because of the praise they are given by parents and teachers. When I first read that, it really hurt to think that I could be the cause of a fixed mindset. But I had never really thought about the impact of these phrases before. How are these attempts at feedback actually helpful? How are they supposed to advance a child's thinking? How do these phrases show a child that you believe they are capable of challenging work? When I finally sat down to really think about it, I found out that they really don't help children. And furthermore, the use or avoidance of judgment phrases like these can really be the result of our own implicit biases having nothing to do with the child's actual capabilities. More and more research studies are revealing that the impact of these praises can actually be harmful in the long run. Bowler goes on to say that even believing you are smart is damaging, as students with this fixed mindset are less willing to try more challenging work or subjects because they are afraid of slipping up and no longer being seen as smart. Children can internalize this talk as meaning that I either have it or I don't, instead of approaching a new skill as something that can be learned. Children also learn that the value of their work needs to be judged by others, meaning that their internal dialogue is always dependent on a script written from an outside source. This book helped me realize that educators need to move away from these judgment calls, check our own implicit biases, and help kids internalize words of affirmation that help them feel safe, valued, and help build a positive identity so that they can focus on learning. Here are some suggestions on what we can say instead. We can build the idea of productive struggle with phrases such as, I can tell you are working hard, and take your time. Adults can communicate the idea that children's voices are heard and valued with phrases such as, show me how you solve this, and I want to hear your idea, or 
What do you think? To help children realize that they are capable of making decisions about their learning, we can incorporate phrases such as, how do you want to show your learning today? And I know you can do this. These are affirming phrases that can be used throughout the school day, really, and even at home while playing a game, working together outside, or learning a new skill. Commit to trying one of these new phrases or adapt one to make it your own. You can head to kidsmathtalk.com for a download of these affirming phrases and also for a link to a bookmark that has phrases to use during partner work. This brings us to strategy number two, using high-yield math routines. We as parents and educators must make it a priority to bring human aspects back to mathematics so that isolated computer problems and anxiety are not how children connect to math. We can do this by tapping into our children's cultures, incorporating things that students truly care about, and by ensuring that they believe that they belong in these math spaces. This requires ambitious teaching on the part of educators, but together we can make this happen because our kids are worth it. One way to start is by introducing some high-yield routines into your math block, like mystery number, quick images, or guess my rule. One of my ultimate favorites is the routine called which one doesn't belong. This is usually introduced as three or four images placed in a two-by-two grid. Students are given a minute or two to look at the images and to begin to look for possible similarities and differences and connections between the images in order to craft an argument around which one doesn't belong. I love this because you can do a search on Google for pre-made grids, you can make your own to make the images more relevant to the children in your class, and students can even make their own. On top of all of this, there's not one right answer. It totally depends on the argument that your students create. Incorporating high-yield routines teaches children that they have a voice, that they are capable of crafting arguments as well as listening in order to critique the reasoning of others. Anxiety is reduced and mathematics becomes relevant for children when teachers highlight connections to the children's funds of knowledge. There are multiple entry points, and these routines allow children to bring their own experiences, stories, and backgrounds into the math space. Some routines that parents can incorporate at home include talking out loud about sorting laundry and the decisions that you are making, and you can have your kids help you do this sorting depending on how old they are. You can talk out loud about the types of fractions and whole numbers that you are using when you're measuring ingredients while cooking. You can count out loud when moving spaces while you're playing board games with your child. Talk out loud about how you see the dots on a dice to help children begin to see your thinking. For example, say something like, I see two groups of three if you roll a six. You can set timers for completing tasks and chores. You can set a specific day each week when you will read a magazine or newspaper with your child to look for graphs, charts, and tables. And now for the strategy that usually gets the most pushback. Strategy number three is stopping timed tests. I know one reason that this gets a lot of pushback from teachers and parents is because this was memorable for us and we are trying to make connections between our own learning and that of our children. Many people vividly remember taking these time tests when in elementary school, but as Bowler states, as long as we keep putting students under pressure to recall facts at speed, we will not erase the widespread anxiety and dislike of mathematics. 
I have talked to adults who remember becoming physically sick in elementary school in order to avoid taking time tests. I remember my peers and I getting really nervous right before a time test. Even still, when I first started teaching third grade, I gave time tests. Almost every teacher in my school gave them. I think back on these early days in my career and I wonder why. Why would we ever want children to have these anxiety-inducing experiences? Why did we want to incorrectly teach children that math ability is only connected to speed? Research now indicates that for about one-third of students, the onset of time testing is the beginning of math anxiety. These traditional 30 problems in a minute and a half, or whatever the ratio might be, don't even give accurate information about how a child is thinking about and approaching a problem. For that one-third of students, the amygdala has taken over and their working memory is not accessible for the duration of the test. I used to be responsible for this onset. And I am guilty of watching my own students start to panic, with some breaking down in tears if their pencil tip broke in the middle of the test or if they all of a sudden couldn't remember two times three. But as the famous poet Maya Angelou said, when you know better, do better. And after three years of watching my students suffer through these timed tests, I learned more about how the brain works and found some research-based equitable strategies to replace timed tests. Designing positive experiences for students, including strategies that value and make student thinking visible, like the formative assessment strategies of interviews and journaling, is what we should be doing instead of timed tests. These both access student funds of knowledge and help children know that there is not a time limit on their thinking. These formative assessments also help you as a teacher get to know how your students are making sense of problems. So there's a great article from NCTM that I reference in my work as a coach a lot called Assessing Basic Fact Fluency by Gina Kling and Jennifer Bay Williams. This article goes into more detail about the limitations of time tests while it also advocates for using formative assessment techniques in their place, including those that I just mentioned. Teachers, share this article with your teaching partners and your principal. Start a dialogue about stopping timed tests and changing to some of these alternative practices. If you've already moved away from time tests, share some of your success stories with the larger teaching community. Parents, I recommend that you read this too, and then share this article with your child's teacher. Find out your school's and your district's stance on time tests. We have to partner together for the well-being of our children. If you have a child at home or students in your classroom that you know are already suffering from math anxiety, there are some other interventions you can try in addition to the three strategies mentioned in this episode. One suggestion is to introduce a column writing activity. On assignments or in a math journal, students can draw a line from top to bottom on the page, creating two columns. On the left-hand side is where they can write their mathematical thinking. On the right-hand side is where students write down how they are feeling. This way, information about how students are approaching the mathematics, how they feel while completing the task, and questions that they might not be saying out loud all have the chance to be expressed. This also means that students are continuing to work without giving up. 
If they get stuck on the task that's on the left-hand side, they can keep their working memory accessible by moving over to the right-hand side to write about their feelings. Ultimately, they're still working on and thinking about the math. Another technique is to have them write down their worries on a blank piece of paper before taking a test. This can help children take their minds off of any fears while they're working. Before an assessment or longer task, teachers can also incorporate calming breathing exercises or fun group dancing videos. Some examples are Go Noodle and Cosmic Kids Yoga on YouTube. And these are not just limited to the classroom. Parents, try these out with your kids at home too. There are lots of fun and excellent ways to reduce anxiety. Each week, you are taking another step to encourage and position kids for competence and success with mathematics. Continue to read about mathematicians with kids and to talk about math at home. We have the power to help change the narrative and internal dialogue for our children. When speaking about math and one another in a positive light without judgments, we can reduce math anxiety and help our kids craft an identity built by positive experiences around math ones where they are competent and capable and not evaluated on speed. So which strategy mention will you commit to starting this week? Email me at kidsmathtalk at gmail.com or tweet me at kidsmathtalk to let me know. And remember to take a deep breath. This is a mindset change and it's going to take some time. Know that I am here to support you and we are together on this journey to create positive Kids Math Talk. Share this podcast with your friends and colleagues to keep the Kids Math Talk conversation going. You can always tweet me with questions or comments using the handle at Kids Math Talk. You can also head to my website, kidsmathtalk.com slash podcast to download a list of affirming phrases that are mentioned in this episode. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or your preferred platform. And join us next week for another episode of the Kids Math Talk podcast.